Well, hopefully you found your way to Exodus chapter 20, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17 uh, together this morning as we look at the final command out of the Ten Commandments. I hope that this study has enriched your understanding of God's Word, enriched your understanding of uh, God's design for your life, His intention. Uh, that you would flourish and thrive in life. I hope that it has increased your understanding of your need for Christ because uh, while the law can show us our sin, it can't save us from our sin. We need Jesus for that. And so hopefully as we've looked at the Ten Commandments, it's pointed you forward as a sign uh, for your need for Christ and God's gracious provision uh, of Christ for our need. And I hope that you've seen how uh, the Ten Commandments are meant to refine us, uh, to look more and more like uh, Christ so that we can live holy lives that are pleasing uh, to the Lord. Well, as we look at the last of the Ten Commandments that uh, God has given to show His people what it looks like to live a life that flourishes, I want to talk with you this morning about what one writer called the rare jewel of Christian contentment. The rare jewel of Christian contentment or If you want a sermon title, you can title this sermon, Stop Looking at the Donkey. (laughs) Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17, let's read God's word together. This is what it says. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So we think about God's Word together this morning. I want you to consider a couple of questions. I actually want these questions to gnaw at you. I want you to think about them throughout the sermon. I want you to think about them this afternoon. When you wake up tomorrow, I want you to think about these two questions. The first question is this, what do you want? I want you to think about that. What do you want in life? What do you want for your life? What do you desire uh, that you don't currently have? What's, What's the one thing that if you think you had it, it would make you truly and finally happy? When you have free moments in your day, when you daydream, what do you, what do you find yourself daydreaming about? Is it a pay raise? Is it a new job? Better health? To get in better shape? A romantic relationship, a boat, don't say amen. (laughs) What is it that you want? Just think about it. Something comes to your mind, I want you just to jot that down, write it down. What do you want? And then the second question, why do you want what you want? Whatever that thing is, if it's a relationship, if it's a, a better health or a better body or a bigger house or a better job, whatever the thing is that you just find yourself wanting, why do you want that thing? In other words, what are you really after by wanting the things that you want the most? I believe that oftentimes the things that we want reveal some underlying desire. We want the thing because we think it's going to give us some other thing. I think that all of us universally desire certain big universal things. We all desire significance and meaning. We want to matter. We want our lives to count, to make a difference. We, we want pleasure. We want comfort. We want security. We want joy. Uh, we, we desire happiness. That's what we really want. And I think that oftentimes we think that the pathway to getting what we really desire is this other thing that I want. So so 
I desire, deep down, I desire comfort or security. So I think that the pathway to get there is a better job or better pay where I make more money and I can have the security I want. Or I, I, what I want deep down, my deep down underlying desire is I want significance or meaning. I want to matter to somebody. And so I think that the pathway to get to meaning or significance maybe is a romantic relationship. That if I could just get that girlfriend, that boyfriend, that spouse, that I'll mean something to someone. And so there's an underlying desire. And I think that by getting something else, I'll get the thing I really want. Or I want joy or happiness. So I think that the pathway to get there is pleasure or fun. And so I set, I set about in my life to try to squeeze every joy and pleasure and experience out of life that I can squeeze. I try to experience all of the experiences I can experience because I just want to experience pleasure or fun. Or I think if I just have more stuff, I'm going to acquire all of the possessions I can possess. Then I'll finally have the thing I'm actually after. I want you to think about that. We, we want things, but there's really something underneath the thing that we want that we really want. There's an underlying deep desire in the human heart that we are trying to satisfy by the thing that we are chasing after. We are like Jaws. How many of you watched Jaws on the 4th of July? Anybody? How many of you know on this section what Jaws is? You ever heard of Jaws? Okay. Uh, right. Now, that was a terrifying movie when you see it as a kid. When you watch it as an adult, you realize that is not as frightening as I remember. You remember Jaws, the shark, was described as a vast eating machine, which when you cut it open, it was found to have eaten fish, an old tire, bones, part of a boat, and a clock for good measure. It's a vast eating machine. Well, as humans, we really are vast eating machines. We accumulate, we possess, we consume, we grab, we eat, we eat, we eat. We are hungry. We desire, we want, we long for. TV marketers understand this. Think about how many TV commercials have to do with your hidden underlying desires. So many commercials have to do with health, fitness, beauty, hunger, pleasure, fun, popularity. TV commercials show you what you want that you don't even know that you want until you see the commercial. Right? How many times have you been watching the ball game late at night? It's 10 o'clock at night. You're watching the Strohs and then boom, there's a pizza commercial. It's like, I'm hungry. I didn't even know I wanted a pizza. But now I do want a pizza. It's like Steve Jobs said when he, you know, he, the inventor of the uh, iPhone, he said this, people don't know what they want until you show it to them. TV marketers know how to show us what we want, show us the hidden underlying thing. That's why you'll watch a commercial and there's two beautiful people on a boat on an exotic island and they look like they're having so much fun and they're so popular and it's an advertisement for toothpaste. It's like, hey, if you... Buy this right brand of toothpaste, you'll be popular like that. You'll be beautiful like that. You'll have fun like that. TV marketers know what they're doing. They're, they're speaking to our desires. And so we hunger and thirst after all sorts of things. Our appetites are voracious. And we try to, to satisfy those desires by accumulating and by consuming and by experiencing and by possessing and by getting everything that we can get. We are vast 
eating machines. The truth is, I, I believe that we actually are designed by God to desire. God has created us this way. We, we, are, uh, we are desiring creatures. Now, there are worldviews out there that would, would dispute that uh, or would argue against that. Like Buddhism, for instance, says, you know, that the problem of humanity is suffering. You suffer because you don't have what you desire. So you, you aim your life at eliminating desire. And there are certain sects of Christianity, for instance, that will focus on that as well, that, that desire is a problem, that longing for things is a problem. And so you should aim your intention at eliminating any kind of desire. Well, I don't actually believe that that's biblical. I think that the Bible says that we are creatures of desire and we're designed to be that way by God. The language of desire is found throughout the Bible, especially in the opening chapters of the Bible. For instance, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, when they're being tempted, they see that the forbidden fruit was delightful to look at and desirable for obtaining wisdom. Later on in uh, Genesis 3:16, God says that the woman's desire will be for her husband. We are desiring creatures. I believe that we're that way because God made us that way. And I actually don't think that desires in and of themselves are bad things or wrong things. In fact, Kevin DeYoung says that the Bible often commends desire in its proper place. From Sarah and Hannah, we see that the desire for children is a good desire. In the Song of Solomon, we see that the desire for sexual intimacy is a good desire. The book of Proverbs encourages us to, to plan and to work hard so that we might improve our lot in life. So desiring some kind of domestic or financial advancement is not automatically wrong. Likewise, it's certainly not wrong to long for more of God or to desire the outpouring of His Spirit. Even Paul desired in one sense that he might die and go to be with Christ. So I'm arguing here today that actually we are desiring creatures and that we are designed by God to desire. Desire itself isn't wrong. Wanting isn't wrong. I believe God created us with longing deep down in our hearts. And in fact, I'd argue that everything that we do in life is ultimately driven by our desires. The things that we choose to do are not often because we think that we should do them, right? Have you ever made a decision that you knew you shouldn't make or you thought maybe I shouldn't make it, but you did it anyway? Why is that? You're driven by your desires. Our desires are very powerful things, something that God has created us with. But have you ever noticed that the things that we want once we get them are never as satisfying as we thought that they would be? Anybody ever notice that or is that just me? You long for something, you ache for something. Maybe you reorganize your entire life to get that something, whether it's a new job or a pay raise or a new car or a romantic relationship, whatever it ha happens to be. And then once you arrive, you're still dissatisfied. It didn't really deliver what you thought it would deliver. It's why suicide rates among CEOs are some of the highest in the nation. You'd think they'd reach the pinnacle, they'd climb the ladder, they've gotten to the top. They'd finally be happy. They'd finally have significance and meaning. They'd finally found what they looked, were looking for. Yet they get there and it didn't deliver. Russell Brand, the uh, comedian and actor, has become very famous uh, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is his, his addictions. Very well-known star who had a struggle with a drug addiction and then later 
began to give himself to promiscuous relationships, famously so. And Russell Brand reflected on that, what he was looking for in those things and what he ultimately found. He said, I, I just noticed in relationship after relationship after relationship, there was a kind of a pleasure there, but there was this ongoing seam of loneliness, unignorable. He says there is a degree of pleasure to be had, but it took a while to recognize the emotional cost on me, the spiritual cost on other people, the fact that this lifestyle was preventing me from becoming a father, from becoming a husband, from settling, from becoming rooted, from becoming actually whole, from becoming a man, from becoming connected. Our desires don't always deliver on the promises that they make. Now, uh, these days, we, we don't use as often uh, these little things called checks. Anybody still use a checkbook? Just curious. About half of you. Anybody know what a checkbook is? <laughs> you know, checks. Um, back in the olden days, they came in these little booklets, and you could write on them to purchase things. And at the end of the month, you'd have to balance your checkbook, you know, to make sure your expenses, you know, weren't more than your income and so forth. But you could also write checks that would bounce. And some of you maybe have been there before. That's where you wrote a check for a certain amount, but you didn't have the funds in your account to pay for the thing that you just wrote the check for. So, so your check promised something that it couldn't deliver. And I think that our desires are often that way. Sometimes we want something because we... we expect that it will bring us what it promises, but we, the things we want, that we want often write checks that can't be cashed. They, they over-promise and they under-deliver. They say, hey, if you, if you seek after me, I'll give you what you're really wanting for, what we're really looking for, but ultimately it won't satisfy you. It won't really give you what you're looking for. In the, in the words of the famous theologians, the Rolling Stones I can't get no, I can't get no, I can't get no. But I tried, and I tried, and I, but I can't get no. Y'all know that one. Yeah, now it's in your head. Hey. If, if you took the book of Ecclesiastes and wrote a title over it, it would say, I can't get no satisfaction. Think about Solomon, the wealthiest man to ever live. You would think if you could be happy by having money, it'd be Solomon. He found at the end of that road was misery. He had more wives and concubines than you could imagine having a thousand. You think if you could be satisfied that way, he would be satisfied. At the end of it, he says, I'm not satisfied. You'd think that by having education, that uh, if you could just get another degree, you'd finally be happy. You, it would be Solomon. He sought after wisdom and education, and it didn't satisfy him. At the end of the day, you read the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's just like one thing that he tried after another, after another, and he, he has a conclusion at the end. It's this word in Hebrew, havel. We translate it vanity. It's all vanity. It means breath. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's there, and then poof, it's gone. You think it's going to give you what you're wanting, but it won't. Why is that? Why is it that we long after things that really don't satisfy? Well, I think, I think there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I think we, we long after, we desire the wrong things. In other words, our desires are disordered. I think God created us with a longing in the human heart 
and we seek to fill that longing with things that won't actually fill it. They're, they're disordered. We long for the wrong things. The other thing is I think that we heap expectations on these things that they can't really bring. And so not only our desires are disordered, but they leave us dissatisfied because we're expecting too much from them. We, we expect to have significance and meaning in a romantic partner. We heap all that expectation on that romantic partner and then they disappoint us or they let us down or it didn't really make us feel as meaningful or significant as we thought it would. You see, because we've directed our desire at the wrong object, our desires are disordered and therefore, because we're heaping so much expectation, it leaves us dissatisfied. In the 10th commandment, there's an acknowledgement of this. God knows that our desires often get off track. They're often directed towards the wrong objects, that we often long for the wrong things or we put too much expectation on the things that we long for. God knows that those things won't give us what we're really looking for. That's why He gives us this instruction twice. He says it in verse 17, do not covet. Do not covet. He says it twice because we needed to hear it twice. Amen? Once is not enough. Do not covet. Do not covet. That's the instruction. He also gives us a direction. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's male or female servant, your neighbor's ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. To covet means to desire. God says don't desire what belongs to your neighbor. Don't desire what doesn't belong to you. Don't desire what God has in his wisdom not entrusted to you. Don't desire what your neighbor has that you don't. Now, I think it's interesting because the moment we think about our desires, we're looking at something a little different here in commandment number 10 than any of the other commands. In, in one way, <clears throat> the 10th commandment is related to all of the other commandments uh, like this. The reason that we steal, for instance, the commandment do not steal. Why do we steal? Because we covet. See, so there's a direct relationship between one commandment to the next. Uh, do not commit adultery. Why do we commit adultery? Because we covet. See, so there's a, a direct connection between covetousness and all the other nine. But there's another sense in which the Tenth Commandment is unlike all of the rest. Every other of the Ten Commandments has to do with something that can be seen by other people. But the Tenth Commandment is something that no one sees but you and God. J.I. Packer puts it this way, that the Tenth Commandment moves from actions to attitudes, from motions to motives, from forbidden deeds to forbidden desires. That is, it moves from the external matters of our life to the internal matters of the heart. It moves from the visible things that everyone else can observe to the hidden things that only God can see. It moves from behaviors all the way deep down to the heart. Here's what I mean. If I steal something from you, it's obvious, it's visible, it's external. You can see that. But I might not steal something from you, but I might covet something that you have, and you'll never see that. Covetousness, in other words, deals with the heart. It deals with the desires. And I think that's very important because this tells us something about God. It tells us that God is not just concerned with the outward appearance of your life. 
God isn't just concerned that you follow the rules and you don't break the law and in everybody else's eyes that you're a rule keeper and you're a good person and things of that nature. External conformity is not enough. God is actually interested in the inward reality of your heart. Externally, you might be keeping all the rules, but inwardly there might be something very disordered and very broken. So God is not just interested in mere conformity to a set of rules. He's interested in actual transformation of your life from the inside out. I remember as a kid being disciplined by my parents. I was told to sit on my hands, close my mouth, and sit for a number of minutes. I don't know why I was told to do that. <laughs> but I remember saying something very unwise, very foolish to my, my mom. I said, well, I'm sitting on the outside but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> Sometimes this is our attitude with God. We're externally conforming, but internally we're rebelling. Something else is going on. In the 10th command, God is wanting to get underneath the surface, down to the very core of who we are, down to what drives us, down to the level of the desires of our heart. God says, if you want to flourish, don't desire what you shouldn't desire. Don't look for fulfillment in what won't fulfill. Don't look for satisfaction in what will not satisfy. Now, he addresses three specific areas that we tend to covet. And then he gives us a kind of a blanket general statement. He says, don't desire your, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's spouse, or your neighbor's circumstances. So let's just consider all three of those. Let's think about it. Number one, he says here in verse 17, do not covet your neighbor's house. That is the stuff that your neighbor owns that you don't own. If you think that getting a bigger house is going to fill that emptiness you feel in your heart, there's no house big enough to fill that space. As a kid, we used to think that if we could just get the next Nintendo We'd have finally arrived. By the time you get the next Nintendo, the next version is out and you're dissatisfied. Now it might be the newest iPhone or a bigger boat or a gated neighborhood. HGTV hasn't helped. Can I get a witness? <laughs> If my kitchen could just look like Chip and Joe worked on it, then I'd be happy. God says, if you're looking for satisfaction in the accumulation of more or better stuff, you'll be dissatisfied. Now, is it wrong to have a nice house or a big boat or a fast car, whatever? It's not wrong. No, in fact, I, I don't think it's wrong at all to have those things. What's wrong is this, when we find our significance in those things. When we look to those things for meaning, when we look to those things for fulfillment, when we find our significance in life in those things instead of the gift of those, giver of those things, like the gift instead of the giver, the created thing instead of the creator, that's when it becomes wrong. In other words, the problem isn't X, Y, or Z. The problem is what I expect from X, Y, or Z. Problem is not the boat. The problem is when I expect from the boat to give me my significance or my popularity or my meaning in life. The problem is not having a spouse. That's a good. The problem is when I heap all of the expectation onto that spouse that I'm going to find my meaning and my significance and my purpose and my joy and my comfort and my security from that spouse. That's when X, Y, or Z 
actually becomes not a good gift from God, but it actually becomes an idol in competition with God. Because now I'm looking to the thing instead of to God for my joy, for my meaning. So, don't covet your neighbor's stuff, his house. Not only not to cover, co- covet our neighbor's house, but don't covet your neighbor's spouse. That is the relationships that your neighbor has. Now, it may just be that the word you need to hear today is what's very literal here, that, that you're, you're being told here not to covet the actual person your neighbor is married to, thinking that if you had a wife that looked like her, you'd be happy. Or if you had a husband who was just good with the kids like that husband is, then you'd be happy. All right, this commandment is connected to the commandment not to commit adultery. You commit adultery because you covet your neighbor's spouse. But there's more to it than that. It's not just the marital relationship. I think that God's intention in the 10th commandment is actually that we shouldn't covet any of the the relationships our neighbors have, whether married or not. The truth is I, I can covet your friends. I can cover, covet your community. It's easy to become envious of the relationships that our neighbor seems to enjoy. Maybe they seem to have a great friend group and you're lonely. So you begin to covet the relationships that your neighbor has or, or they seem to be really popular. And you think if you could just get invited to the social events that they attend, then you'd have significance and meaning. And God says, if you're looking for your deep-seated joy and meaning and satisfaction in human relationships, it's going to let you down. It won't satisfy you. It'll never be enough. And then finally, verse 17 says, don't covet your neighbor's male or female servant, his ox or his donkey. Okay, now what's this about? Well, I think God is saying don't covet the circumstances that your neighbor enjoys. The picture that's being painted here is of someone who has a comfortable situation in life. That they're wealthy enough to have male and female servants, which also means they're more comfortable. They're, they're prominent enough to have oxes and donkeys. They, they have, in other words, they have, uh, they have people who work for them. They have livestock. They have really comfortable circumstances. They enjoy the creature comforts. Their life situation seems to be a little bit better than yours. You know, if only I had a servant. If only I had that ox. If only I had another donkey. If only I had more livestock. That's the picture that's being painted here. God says, look, if you're looking to those things, the circumstances that your neighbor enjoys to bring you happiness, it won't bring you happiness. Their their stock market account seems to be doing well. They have housekeepers and groundskeepers. They can store their boat out on their lake house. Their kids are on the honor roll. Their dogs are obedient. (laughs) Their job allows them to travel the world and take expensive vacations. I mean, my donkey overheats and breaks down on the way to Walmart. (laughs) Their donkey has a Hemi and a convertible top. God says, if you're looking at your neighbor's circumstances and just think if you could enjoy the life they enjoy, that you'd be happy, you'll be dissatisfied. And by the way, in case there was anything that was left out, this last general statement at the end of verse 17, God God says, don't covet anything. Because I left anything out. Don't covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Jen Wilkins says that covetousness whispers that what we deserve has been given to our neighbor. You ever notice that 
Covetousness is often fed by comparison. We're comparing my life to my neighbor's life, and their life seems to be so much better than my life. Somebody calls this the, the idolatry of an ideal. My neighbor seems to be living an ideal existence. They, they seem to be happier in their marriage. They seem to be more fulfilled in their job. They seem to be having more fun than I do. Here I am leading this miserable little life while everyone around me seems to be doing so well. And when I compare my life to their life, I grow discontented and covetousness. Uh, covet, covetous. I want what they've got that I don't have. I deserve it, but it's been given to them. The problem with that, of course, is that that ideal is probably not true to reality in your neighbor's life. <laughs> Your neighbor might be just as miserable as you, maybe more so. And for probably every generation in this room, social media has not helped the situation, right? Because somebody's life on Instagram just looks perfect. They're always smiling. Their kids seem to always be at the beach and they seem to just be having a great time. But that's not all, that ideal is not usually true to reality. They don't post their bad hair day. They don't post their stinky breath. They don't post those arguments around the dinner table. Hey, everybody, look at my kid arguing with me. It's not the way it works. So Instagram is not real life. Can I get a witness? Okay, so we're comparing ourselves to an ideal. I mean, you can see this in the airport, right? You'll see the 16-year-old sitting in the airport looking like they're sucking on a lemon. And then they get a coffee and they selfie with the coffee. ka -ching! post it, and then they go back to their little miserable life. <laughs> so, you see this ideal lifestyle, you compare yourself to it, and then you covet. Our desires are disordered. We long after the wrong things. We put the weight of expectation on it that it can't hold. And so we're left dissatisfied. Keeping up with the Joneses doesn't work. You can see all kinds of examples in the Bible where this doesn't work, right? David covets Bathsheba. I can just have her. He thought it, that hole in his heart would be filled. It didn't work. It made things worse. Think about Satan. If he could take the place of God, he'd be satisfied. No, how'd that work out? That's covetousness. Covetousness can consume us. And it's interesting, the, the problem with the 10th commandment is that it's really the parallel of the first commandment. First commandment, have no other gods before me. When you really think about what covetousness is, covetousness is when I, what I want becomes what I worship. Covetousness is when what I want becomes my functional savior. It's where I'm looking to the thing I want to be my God. It's why Paul calls covetousness, in Colossians 3, 5, he calls covetousness idolatry. It's where what I want becomes what I worship. So is there any hope here? I mean, we're all desiring creatures. I believe God actually created us that way, designed us to desire. But our desires, all of us, our desires are disordered, therefore leaving us dissatisfied. So are we just caught in this hopeless loop of wanting things and then getting them and then not being happy with them? So we want something else and we're not happy with that till we die? I mean, is, that, is that our lot in life? No, I don't believe so. I believe God has more for us. I believe God has something better for us. I believe there is great hope. Here's the hope. 
we need to direct our desires to their proper object. I believe that you have a God-given longing deep down in your heart that was designed to be filled by nothing less than God Himself. And any time you try to fill that longing with anything less than God, it will leave you dissatisfied. And I actually believe that that's like breadcrumbs that God has left in the universe to draw you to Himself. Because you're going to try to be satisfied with this, 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 this. None of it works until you meet God. The reality is <clears throat> we are created by God to desire. We were created with longing. I believe we were created with infinite longing. Which means our desires will go unsatisfied if you try to fulfill the infinite longing with something that's merely finite. In the words of the French mathematician Blaise Pascal, we have a God-shaped hole in the human heart. Only God can fill it. We try to fill it with other stuff. We try to pour into that hole our career, human relationships, human hungers. It's still empty. Why? Because it's God-shaped. God Himself is the infinite fulfillment of your infinite desires. And as long as you find the fulfillment in something finite, you will go unsatisfied. Here's the secret to addressing a covetous heart. It's directing your desires toward the right object, the only object that can really satisfy. The secret to addressing a covetous heart is finding contentment in Christ. That's the only way to truly and finally become content. Contentment comes when you discover that Jesus himself is enough to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. Do you want meaning and significance in your life? How much more meaning and significance can you have than to serve the king of the universe and give your life to his causes? Amen. You want comfort and security? How much more comfort and security can you have than giving to yourself to one who gave himself for you and now you become eternally secure and can enjoy the riches and the treasures and the pleasures of heaven forevermore. You want joy and happiness. How about finding joy and happiness in one that regardless of the particular circumstances that you happen to be in, that when you have Christ, you can find a deep-seated joy, a deep-seated happiness regardless of your circumstances. Jesus can satisfy you like no one else and nothing else can. And here's the deal. Covetousness is fed by comparison, but it's starved by contentment in Christ. If you want to starve a covetous heart, then feed contentment in Christ. Paul understood this. In Philippians chapter 4, you remember what Paul said? This is a very familiar passage. You'll see this on eye black on the gridiron. You'll see it on people's Instagram posts when they lift lots of weights. But it's not really what the verse is about. Listen to what Paul says. Philippians 4 verse 11. I don't say this out of need for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with a little. I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. 
Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I'm able to do all things. Now let's say this part together. Through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul found the secret. The secret is Christ. The problem is not our desires. The problem is that we're desiring the wrong thing. We need to direct our desires towards Christ and find contentment in what we already have when we have Jesus. Someone says that desire isn't evil because it's strong. Desire becomes evil when it's fixed on the wrong objects. That's why C.S. Lewis argued that the problem is not that our desires are too strong, but our desires are too weak. Lewis said that we are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We have, it's raining. (laughs) Thank you, Lord. We have infinite desires. Jesus is the infinite being who offers us infinite joy we'll simply find him as the object of our greatest desire. There's a young man about 1,700 years ago named Augustine who came to understand the truth of what I'm telling you. Augustine is probably the most important theologian in 2,000 years of church history. He grew up a rebel. Uh, Rebels run away from home. That's exactly what he did. He grew up in North Africa in a town called Thagaste. But it wasn't enough. He, he thought that if he just went to a more important city, that he could finally, uh, you know, experience the good life. So he left home in rebellion, went to a town called Carthage, went to uh, study rhetoric with a very famous rhetorician, and he became in his own right a very accomplished orator. And in those days, he would use words to entertain a crowd, uh, just like anybody in the entertainment industry. He thought that would bring him joy, but it left him dissatisfied. And so in Carthage, he fell in with a group of friends, but these friends let him off track and they started doing all kinds of crazy things. He lived a party lifestyle. Just imagine a Hollywood star uh, seeking out every desire they could find. That was Augustine. Eventually, he got dissatisfied with that. So he thought, well, maybe if I just go to a bigger city, a more prominent place. So he moved to Rome. Same song, second verse. Same thing happened. He lived a promiscuous life. He sought out all of these pleasures and all of these other things. Nothing seemed to fill his heart. So he thought, well, maybe Rome is not big enough, so I'll go to Milan. It's like New York City in 1,700 years ago. It was classy. It was prominent. It was important. That's where the movers and shakers went. And he just thought, hey, my name will be in light, so I'll be known. I'll be famous. I'll be popular. I can experience all the delights and all the pleasures of this cosmopolitan city. And he goes there, he's left dissatisfied yet again until he meets an old bishop by the name of Ambrose. And Ambrose begins to become friends with Augustine. They begin to have conversations about Christianity and eventually Augustine surrendered. He had a radical transformation. He gave his life to Christ and everything changed for for Augustine. He found a new found joy that he couldn't discover in any other way. And God just totally changed the trajectory of his life. Now, later in life, he wrote a, a, a book. It was a confession of sorts. In fact, it's called Confessions. It's very transparent. He just talks about his whole life. He talks about all of his wicked exploits. 
And it's formed like a prayer. The book is written in the form of a prayer where he just recounts his story, his life. But this is the opening paragraph. This is a statement he makes in the very first paragraph of the Confessions. He says, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. He understood that God created you for himself. And your heart will look in a thousand different directions and will be restless until it finds its true place of rest, which is God himself. Later in the Confessions, Augustine says, there is a delight which is given to those who worship you for no reward save the joy that you yourself are to them. That is the authentic happy life. To set one's joy on you, grounded in you and caused by you, that is the real thing and there is no other. Those who think that the happy life is found elsewhere pursue another joy and not the true one. James K. Smith has written a wonderful book about Augustine. He says, for Augustine, we are made for joy. We find joy when we look for the satisfaction of our hungers in the triune God who will never leave us or forsake us. When we find our enjoyment in an immortal God whose love is unfailing, that is rightly ordered love. That is rightly ordered worship. What then is idolatry? Existentially, the problem with idolatry is that it is an exercise in futility a penchant that ends in profound dissatisfaction and unhappiness. Idolatry, in idolatry, we are heaping infinite, immortal expectations on created things that will pass away. We are settling on some aspect of the creation rather than being referred through it to its creator. Disordered love is like falling in love with the boat rather than the destination. The problem is that the boat won't last forever. It is going to start to feel claustrophobic. Your heart is built for another shore. So stop looking at the donkey. Getting your neighbor's donkey won't give you what you think it will give you. You won't find the comfort, the joy, the satisfaction, the meaning in life that you're looking for by coveting what your neighbor has. You'll find it when you find it in Christ, who is altogether satisfying. It's why in the new creation, one day we will walk on streets of gold. Have you ever thought about why the Bible talks about walking on streets of gold? It's because the things that we tend to elevate and idolize in this life, in the next life, we'll trample upon. We'll see them for what they really are in comparison to Christ. Nothing. Looking for joy and satisfaction in the other things is like drinking salt water when you're thirsty just makes you more thirsty. But if you come to Jesus, this is what he says. He says, I'll give you water that when you drink it, you'll never be thirsty again. And church, that is the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Let's pray together. Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So draw us by your spirit to desire you above all else. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.